Welcome to another in-depth exploration of the book of Jeremiah. Written by Imre Tokich, Ph.D., LLD. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 8. Josiah's Reforms. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. Second Kings chapter 23, verse 25, New Living Translation. Parents know just how hard it is to see their children, especially when they are older and out of the parents' control, make choices that they know will hurt them. Of course, this heartache doesn't apply only to parents and children. Who hasn't at some point seen friends or relatives or anyone make choices that you knew would be detrimental to them? This is an unfortunate aspect of what it means to have free will. Free will, especially moral free will, means nothing if we don't have the freedom to make wrong choices. A free being who can choose only the right is not truly free, or even truly moral. That is why much of Scripture is the story of God warning His people about not making wrong choices. This has been a major part of what the book of Jeremiah is about, too the pleadings of God, who respects free choice and free will to his chosen nation. And though, unfortunately, most of the stories are not good, in this exploration we will get to see a glimmer of hope. We will hear about one of the few kings who, using free will, chose to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However much we like to talk about objectivity, about viewing things as they really are, as human beings, we are hopelessly subjective. We see the world not so much as the world really is, but as we really are. And because we are fallen and corrupted beings, this corruption is going to impact our perceptions and interpretation of the world around us. How else, for instance, can we explain someone like King Manasseh of Judah, about 686 to 643 BC, especially those early years of his terrible apostasy? One can hardly imagine how he justified in his own mind the horrific abominations he allowed to flourish in Judah. 
Let's listen to Second Chronicles chapter 33. What does this story tell us about just how corrupt a king Manasseh was? More important, what does this teach us about the willingness of God to forgive? Manasseh rules in Judah. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father, Hezekiah, had broken down. He constructed altars for the images of Baal and set up Ashereth poles. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. He built these altars for all the powers of the heavens in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh also sacrificed his own sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Manasseh even took a carved idol he had made and set it up in God's temple the very place where God had told David and his son Solomon, My name will be honored forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, the city I have chosen from among all the tribes of Israel. If the Israelites will be careful to obey my commands, all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses, I will not send them into exile from this land, that I set aside for your ancestors. But Manasseh led the people of Judah and Jerusalem to do even more evil than the pagan nations that the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all his warnings. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Assyrian armies and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains, and led him away to Babylon. But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. After this, Manasseh rebuilt the altar walls of the city of David from west of the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley to the Fishgate and continuing around the hill of Ophel. He built the wall very high and he stationed his military officers in all of the fortified towns of Judah. Manasseh also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple. 
he tore down all the altars he had built on the hill where the temple stood and all the altars that were in Jerusalem, and he dumped them outside the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings on it. He also encouraged the people of Judah to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. However, the people still sacrificed at the pagan shrines, though only to the Lord their God. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, his prayer to God, and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Manasseh's prayer, the account of the way God answered him, and an account of all his sins and unfaithfulness are recorded in the record of the seers. The record of Hosei. It includes a list of the locations where he built pagan shrines and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself and repented. When Manasseh died, he was buried in his palace. Then his son, Ammon, became the next king. Ammon rules in Judah. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He worshipped and sacrificed to all the idols his father had made. But unlike his father, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Instead, Ammon sinned even more. Then Ammon's own officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. But the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son Josiah the next king. No question, being hauled off to Babylon with hooks and bronze fetters was certain to get a man to rethink his life. Nevertheless, the text is clear. Manasseh truly repented of his ways, and when restored to the throne, sought to repair the damage that he had done. Unfortunately, the damage was greater than he might have imagined. But this repentance, remarkable though it was, came too late to save the kingdom from the corrupting influence of years of idolatrous practices. Many had stumbled and fallen, never again to rise. The book is Prophets and Kings, page 383. The author's name is Ellen G. White. Among those who had been terribly impacted by Manasseh's apostasy was his son. Ammon, who took the throne after his father died, and who did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and served them. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 22, New King James Version. Worse, unlike his father, Ammon never 
repented of his ways. Who doesn't know personally the terrible consequences that can come even from sin that has been forgiven? What promises can you claim for the victory over sin? Why not claim them now before the sin brings its dismal consequences? A New King A preacher once said, Be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. Israel had asked for and longed for a king just like the nations around them. They got what they asked for, and so much of Israelite history after the era of the judges was the story of how these kings corrupted themselves on the throne and, as a result, corrupted the nation as well. Nevertheless, there were always exceptions, such as King Josiah, who ascended the throne in 639 B.C. and ruled until 608 B.C. What was the context in which the new king had come to the throne? Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 25 in the expanded Bible answers that question. Then the people of the land killed, executed, all those who had made plans, conspired, plotted to kill King Ammon. And they made his son Josiah king in his place. Though democracy is supposed to be rulership by the people, it generally wasn't conceived of functioning as it did in this case. Nevertheless, the people made their will known, and it was done according to their will. The young king came to the throne at a time of great turmoil, apostasy, and violence, even at the highest level of government. Seeing what was going on, many faithful in the land had wondered whether God's promises to ancient Israel could ever be fulfilled. From a human point of view, the divine purpose for the chosen nation seemed almost impossible of accomplishment. Those words were written by Ellen G. White from her book, Prophets and Kings, page 384. The anxiety of the faithful ones was expressed in the words of the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, what is the prophet Habakkuk saying? How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law 
has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. Unfortunately, the answer to the problem of iniquity, violence, strife, and lawlessness would come, but from the north, from the Babylonians, whom God would use to bring judgment upon his wayward people. As we have seen all along, it didn't have to be that way. However, because of their refusal to repent, they faced the punishment that their sins brought upon them. From a human point of view, how often does the divine purpose seem to be impossible to accomplish. What does this tell you about how you need to reach out in faith beyond what you see or fully understand? Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Second Kings Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Considering the context of Josiah coming to the throne, what is so remarkable about these two verses? The Bible doesn't give us any explanation for this remarkable young man who, considering the circumstances, was most likely destined to be as corrupt and wicked as his father before him. That, however, wasn't the case. For whatever reasons, he chose a different course, and that was to have a positive, though ultimately limited, impact on the nation. Second Kings chapter 22 mentions what Josiah did in regard to the temple. From the dedication of the temple by Solomon, long centuries had passed until Josiah's reforms in 622 B.C. The kings had not really taken care of the temple. Time had eroded the building, which had once been beautiful. The young king saw that the temple was no longer suitable for worship due to long years of neglect. What did Josiah do when he discovered the temple was in such disrepair? Second Kings, chapter 22, verses 3 through 7, in the Lexham English Bible tells us, 
It happened in the eighteenth year of King Josiah. The king sent word to Shaphan, the king of Azaleah, the son of Mishullam, the secretary of the temple of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, and let them count the money being brought to the temple of Yahweh, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let them give it into the hand of those appointed doers of the work at the temple of Yahweh. Let them give it to the doers of the work who are at the temple of Yahweh to repair the breach of the temple, to the skilled craftsmen, to the builders, to the masons, and to buy timber and hewing stones to repair the temple. Only the money being given to them is not to be accounted for by them, for they are dealing with honesty. Today we would say that the king sent his minister of finance to the high priest and asked him to plan and oversee the materials and labor required to renovate the temple. They did not have to account for the money with which they were entrusted because they were acting faithfully. For whatever reasons, Josiah showed trust in them, and as far as the record shows, that trust was honored. Refurbishing the temple is fine, but in the end, what really is important for a true revival and reformation to begin? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 in the Lexham English Bible tell us the prerequisites. Do nothing according to selfish ambition or according to empty conceit, but in humility considering one another better than yourselves, each of you not looking out for your own interests, but also each of you for the interests of others. Think this in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming in the likeness of people, and being found in appearance like a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, that is, death on a cross. The Book of the Law The renovation of the temple, long the center of Israelite worship, was important, but renovation of a building wasn't all that was needed. The most beautiful and elaborate structure, though designed to help worshipers sense something of the power and grandeur of the Lord, in and of itself isn't enough to evoke piety among the people. History is replete with the sad stories of people 
who one minute were worshipping in some beautiful church somewhere, and the next minute were walking out and committing an atrocity, which was perhaps even instigated by what they learned inside that beautiful structure. What happened during the renovation of the temple? What is the powerful significance of Josiah's reaction to those events? 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 11. Report what happened after Hilkiah discovered God's law. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. They found the book of the law. What part, or even if it were the whole thing, the Bible doesn't say. It was probably found buried in the walls somewhere in the temple. Let's listen to Second Kings chapter 22, verses 12 through 20, from the New Living Translation. Two questions to be thinking about. What was Huldah's message from God to the people and to King Josiah. What do her words say to you? Then he gave these orders to Hekiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Aziah went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah. 
who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring on this city. So they took her message back to the king. Huldah transmitted the same message Jeremiah had already prophesied several times. The people who had turned away from God had dug their own grave through their deeds, and they were going to reap the consequences. Josiah never would see the trouble and die in peace. The reference for the following quotation, the book Prophets and Kings, page 399. The author is Ellen G. White. Through Huldah, the Lord sent Josiah word that Jerusalem's ruin could not be averted. Even should the people now humble themselves before God, they could not escape their punishment. So long had their senses been deadened by wrongdoing that, if judgment should not come upon them, they would soon return to the same sinful course. Tell that man that sent you to me, the prophetess declared. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place, and shall not be quenched. Josiah's Reforms Despite the forewarning of doom, Josiah was still determined to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Maybe disaster couldn't be averted. But in announcing the retributive judgments of heaven, the Lord had not withdrawn opportunity for repentance and reformation. And Josiah, discerning in this a willingness on the part of God to temper his judgments with mercy, determined to do all in his power to bring about decided reforms. Another insight from Ellen G. White's book, Prophets and Kings, page 400. 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 1 through 28, describe Josiah's nationwide revival initiative. What was the essence of the reform that the faithful king sought to bring to his corrupted nation. What do these acts tell you about 
just how bad things had become in the chosen nation. Second Kings chapter 23, verses 1 through 28, from the New Living Translation. Josiah's Religious Reforms Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets. All the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second rank, and the temple gatekeepers, to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by the previous kings of Judah, for they had offered sacrifices at the pagan shrines throughout Judah and even in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They had also offered sacrifices to Baal and to the sun, the moon, the constellations, and to all the powers of the heavens. The king removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it outside Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley, where he burned it. Then he ground the ashes of the pole to dust, and threw the dust over the graves of the people. He also tore down the living quarters of the male and female shrined prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord, where the women wove coverings for the Asherah pole. Josiah brought to Jerusalem all the priests who were living in other towns of Judah. He also defiled the pagan shrines where they had offered sacrifices, all the way from Geba to Beersheba. He destroyed the shrines at the entrances to the gate of Joshua, the governor of Jerusalem. This gate was located to the left of the city gate as one enters the city. The priests who had served at the pagan shrines were not allowed to serve at the Lord's altar in Jerusalem, but they were allowed to eat unleavened bread with the other priests. Then the king defiled the altar of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, so no one could ever again use it to sacrifice a son or daughter in the fire as an offering to Molech. He removed from the entrance of the Lord's temple the horse statues 
that the former kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were near the quarters of Nathan Melech, the eunuch, an officer of the court. The king also burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. Josiah tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had built on the palace roof, above the upper room of Ahaz. The king destroyed the altars that Manasseh had built in the two courtyards of the Lord's temple. He smashed them to bits and scattered the pieces in the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the pagan shrines east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, where King Solomon of Israel had built shrines for Ashtoreth, the detestable goddess of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the detestable god of the Moabites, and for Molech, the vile god of the Ammonites. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. Then he desecrated these places by scattering human bones over them. The king also tore down the altar at Bethel, the pagan shrine that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had made when he caused Israel to sin. He burned down the shrine and ground it to dust, and he burned the Asherah pole. Then Josiah turned around and noticed several tombs in the side of the hill. He ordered that the bones be brought out, and he burned them on the altar at Bethel to desecrate it. This happened just as the Lord had promised through the man of God when Jeroboam stood beside the altar at the festival. Then Josiah turned and looked up at the tomb of the man of God who had predicted these things. What is that monument over there? Josiah asked. And the people of the town told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted the very things that you have just done to the altar of Bethel. Josiah replied, Leave it alone. Don't disturb his bones. So they did not burn his bones or those of the old prophet from Samaria. Then Josiah demolished all the buildings at the pagan shrines in the towns of Samaria, just as he had done at Bethel. They had been built by the various kings of Israel and had made the Lord very angry. He executed the priests of the pagan shrines on their own altars, and he burned human bones on the altars to desecrate them. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. Josiah celebrates Passover. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah's reign, the Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah also got rid of the mediums and psychics, the household gods, the idols, 
and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. He did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah. He turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. Even so, the Lord was very angry with Judah because of all the wicked things Manasseh had done to provoke him. For the Lord said, I will also banish Judah from my presence, just as I have banished Israel, and I will reject my chosen city of Jerusalem and the temple where my name was to be honored. The rest of the events in Josiah's reign and all his deeds are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Judah. Josiah gathered all the people in Jerusalem in order to renew their covenant with God. The recently found book of the law was read, and then they made the vow to follow the God of Israel. The king did not execute this work by himself, but asked those who had spiritual responsibilities to do what was needed. As an example, throughout the centuries, different objects, statues, and symbols that popularized foreign worship in Israel had been gathered into the temple. Sometimes they had been part of the conditions of peace imposed upon the nation. Sometimes kings had exhibited them in order to signify their pacification, a sign of surrender. Whatever the reasons, they did not belong there, and Josiah ordered them removed and destroyed. Also, the Passover celebration during Josiah's reform did not take place only within the family households, as had been the custom before, but now the whole nation celebrated it together. Its symbolic message for the people was that they had left the old era behind them, and that they had now entered a new time in which they vowed to serve the true God who led them out of Egypt, who provided a home for the tribes as he had promised, and who was with them in their everyday lives. The significance in celebrating the national Passover was to start something new because ideally, anyway, all the old things had come to an end. What should the symbolism of the Passover mean to us now, as Seventh-day Adventists? Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, which says, Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough, made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us.
Let's continue exploring. As we have already discovered, the depth of corruption that had befallen Israel can be seen in the kind of reforms that Josiah had to undertake. How, though, could the nation have fallen so far? In one sense, the answer is easy. It's because humanity has fallen so far. Just how far humanity has degraded was revealed in a famous experiment conducted at Yale University in the 1960s. Participants were brought in arbitrarily through newspaper ads and told that they were to administer electric shocks to people tied down to chairs in another room. The switches that administered the shocks were marked from slight shock to danger severe shock, including two more ominously marked triple X. Participants were told to administer the shocks according to the orders of the scientist leading the experiment. As they did, the participants would hear the people in the other room scream and plead for mercy. In reality, the people in the other room were just acting. They were not getting shocked at all. The point of the study was to see how far these normal participants would go in inflicting what they thought was pain on those whom they didn't know, simply because they had been ordered to do it. The results were frightening. Though many participants got anxious, distraught, and even angry, that didn't stop a stunning 65% from administering the severest shocks to these people, believing that they were truly hurting them. Quote, ordinary people, wrote the scientists who conducted the experiment, simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible, destructive process. End quote. How many ordinary people have done terrible things through history or even today? Too many have, for sure. Why? Christians know the answer. We are sinners, plain and simple. Here are a few points to ponder and questions to consider. Here is a valid question. If it were too late to avoid the coming catastrophe, why the call for repentance and revival and reformation? What was the purpose of it all? What answer would you give? In what ways might the reason be found in how such a revival would impact the people individually as opposed to the nation as a whole? What does the story of Josiah's reform tell you about the importance of the Word of God in your life?
ambassadorgroup.org. Thank you for exploring with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.